maybe she's 40. And uh, she started out with us when she was very young. And she serves in the country of Afghanistan. It's an incredibly hard place to be. I went to visit her with my wife a few years ago. Believe me, it's a tough place. War has erupted again there and unrest. And she, along with some other workers, have had to leave the country. And she wrestled for some time, Lord, where do we go? We're so committed to reaching Afghans with the gospel of Jesus. Where do we go, Lord? And she found herself with some others in Athens, Greece. Athens is a melting pot. So many peoples of the world go to Athens when they're trying to flee from very, very difficult settings elsewhere in the world. Her heartbeat was to reach Afghans in Greece and she was engaging in some ministry and came across a dear lady she had led to Christ back in Afghanistan. And that lady said to her, would you please help me reach more people here with the good news of Jesus? And she said, I would love to do that. She right now, one of the people you are helping support is serving in Athens, reaching Afghans. And this isn't being live streamed, is it? this service. So I'll tell you very discreetly, she right this minute is back in Afghanistan trying to stay there for the longer term. But this is a survey trip. So back in the country in order to make Christ known among very difficult people. Thank you for being a part of that story. People are coming to know Jesus and you're playing a part in that elsewhere in the world. It's a vicarious ministry. Second story, I've just come back a few weeks ago from Arnhem Land, the Northern Territory, where we have a bunch of uh, pioneers workers serving in teams to reach indigenous Australians with the good news of Jesus. One particular community out there was uh, warring among themselves. I mean, really tough stuff. I and mean, we're, we're talking clubs and fisticuffs and, and, and sticks and killings. And the police were so impressed with how another community where some missionaries are serving had changed, the police paid for 40 people who know Jesus to fly from one community to another. The tickets are about $1,000 each. The police paid for 40 people to travel from that community that's been transformed by the good news of Jesus to visit that community. When they arrived, the local community there said, uh, we have come to uh, beat you. They literally met the aircraft as it landed with sticks and clubs to beat them. And they said, but there's something about you that we can't resist. And they were unable to harm those Christian visitors. You're a part of that. It's amazing how God is at work in the world. So I do want to say thank you for blessing uh, peoples of the world. You may never meet this side of heaven, but you're a part of that ministry. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you so much. I also bring this morning greetings from Joy, my wife. She wasn't able to be here today because she'll be traveling next weekend, so she needed to be at our church this morning. And greetings from Sab and Nicole. I was chatting on the phone to them a few days ago. Sab and Nicole and Joy and I share a grandson. And his name is Freddie, Federico. He's 10 months old, he's Leon's nephew. And uh, he's just a beautiful little boy and they're doing very well. Sarah and James in South Australia are doing so well. 
and I was chatting with them yesterday, they send their love to you. And because this isn't being live streamed, I can say this publicly, I remain Freddie's favorite grandfather. It's just a fact, and uh, Sab probably knows, he probably knows anyway, I'm the favorite. At least that's what I tell Sab. So, loving greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus. Uh, there's a fascinating little story told. Did I ever tell you this story? It's set in 1962, and it's the story about President John F. Kennedy when he visited NASA, the space agency. In 1961, JFK became president. In 1962, he visited NASA. In 1963, he was assassinated. This story is set in 1962. This is the space era. It's the race to the moon. Who would get there first? Would it be the Americans? Would it be the Russians? The Russians had already sent man into space and successfully brought him back to Earth. But who would get to the moon first? And the story goes in 1962 that President John F. Kennedy visited NASA and on the tour of, his, of the facility, he approaches a man who is mopping the floors. It's a funny little story because he stops the tour and he turns to that man and he says to him, excuse me, sir, what are you doing? I guess he says it in a Boston accent that I can't uh, mimic very well, but you know, like, excuse me, sir, what are you doing? It's a funny story because this is the president of the United States of America. This is the most powerful man in the world asking this relatively insignificant individual, what are you doing? It's a funny story for a second reason, because it's obvious what he's doing. He's a cleaner. He's mopping the floor. But he turns to the man, he says to him, excuse me, sir, what are you doing? And the man, the story goes, that the man puts his mop back in the bucket, stands upright, and with a twinkle in his eye, says to the president, Mr. President, I am helping send man to the moon. It's a great answer. What would you have said? I bet you would have said, I'm cleaning the floors. And this man had this remarkable perspective. He said, I'm helping send man to the moon. He had the same ambition as Neil Armstrong himself. It's a wonderful little story. There's many things we can say about it, but I want to highlight just one thing about that account. The story took place in 1962 and man didn't get to the moon until 1969 and I wonder was that man still mopping the floors all those years I suggest that it's much easier to stay the course and, and, and to keep at something when you're very significant when you're very seen, when your service is prominent, when you get the, the stage, when people recognize you, when you're on show, but mopping the floors all those years, cleaning up other people's mess, 
other people's footprints? I wonder, was he still serving in that relatively unseen space all those years? I want to share a story with you this morning from a text you know well. You know it's always a dangerous thing to do, to share from a text with which everyone is familiar. I know that many of you have been in churches for many, many years, and you have perfected the art of the attentive stare. And, uh, and that I, uh, uh, you look like you're listening carefully, but you're really in your happy place because you say, well, I know this text, and uh, you kind of switch off. But I'm going to encourage you this morning to listen really carefully to the Word of God and see what He has to say to us this morning. A very familiar text. It's a text about a miracle Jesus performed. In fact, it's the only pre-cross miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. I would argue that this is the most important miracle the Lord Jesus performed before he went to the cross. You think of all the things Jesus did when he was on earth. This is the only miracle that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's fascinating. Isn't that interesting? It's a miracle, a story that you know very, very well. It's recorded in all four Gospels, which may be why it's a particular object of skepticism by those who don't believe. It's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. We're going to look at it this morning in John chapter 6. The feeding of the 5,000. People are very skeptical about this miracle. Some will say, for example, it's not really the, the miracle of the multiplication of the food. The miracle was the change in people's hearts. They saw this little boy who so generously, so magnanimously shared his little lunch that those who had all the food hidden in the folds of their robes were moved by what they saw the little boy do so that they shared their food too, their food too and everyone had enough to eat. Now tell me, if, if that were the case, who would be the hero? Be the little boy, not the Lord Jesus. Others will say, well, this is the first sacramental meal, a bit like we just had communion. It was like the first communion. Uh, when we took communion, we just have a little bit each. Just a tiny portion, just a fraction of a meal. And some people will say, well, that's kind of like what this was. It, everyone just had a little bit. But if that were the case, what do we do with the 12 baskets of fragments that were left over? The best way to take the text is to take it exactly as it reads. A miracle in the hands of the Lord Jesus. And this is no problem if Jesus is God. So one commentary writer writes this. It's clear that every evangelist, he means each of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He says it's clear that every evangelist Suppose our Lord to have wrought a creative act. He created something. And I for myself, he writes, I have no doubt that this is what occurred. 
But this is only credible, however, if John is right in his doctrine of our Lord's person. If the Lord was indeed God incarnate, this story presents no insuperable difficulties. But of course, such a creative act is incredible. Impossible, he means, if Jesus is less than or other than God. But Jesus is God. In John chapter 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And scroll down the text of verse 14, And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So Jesus is God. And it's no problem for God to work miracles. And so we're just going to take the miracle exactly as it is. So let's uh, have a look. We'll have a look at John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. We'll just read a little bit at a time and make a few comments. And as you read the passage, you'll see it basically falls into four sections, four sections of thought. Uh, James, you gave us the three E's. Educate, encourage, evangelize. I like that. I'll never forget that. I'm going to give you the four C's in this text. We're going to look at the context, and then we're going to look at the conversations. There are two of them. And then we're going to look at the catering. That's the miracle itself. And then we're going to look at the conclusion and see what difference it makes for us today. So let's start with the context. We'll read verses 1 to 4. John chapter 6. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. And then Jesus went up on a mountainside and he sat down with the disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. So this is the context. The Lord Jesus is obviously leaving his home area, of Capernaum, and he's moving to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, why did he do this? Well, there are a number of reasons. Here's one. Jesus was looking for some R&R, some rest and recreation. In Mark we read, Jesus told his disciples, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Rest is an important part of life. And the Lord Jesus needs some rest in his humanity. And he says to his disciples, come with me. Let's go and get some rest in a quiet place. He's always thinking of others. There's a famous saying that goes like this. If you don't come apart, you'll come apart. If you don't take some time out, you'll fall apart. It was a a phrase that's coined by a man named Vance Havner. You need to come apart before you come apart. And the Lord Jesus is looking for some rest. There's a second reason, which you can see in the text. The Lord Jesus wanted to spend some time with his disciples. It says that in verse 3. He went up onto a mountainside and he sat down with them. He's obviously looking for some time with them. He's going to teach them. He's going to have fellowship with them. They would sit or stand while the rabbi sat. But I think the primary reason the Lord Jesus is leaving his hometown area at this time is to avoid some conflict. William Barclay in his commentary says this, 
on this particular occasion, it was wise to go away before there was a head-on collision with the authorities. For the time of the final conflict had not yet come. So he's probably avoiding some kind of conflict. So this is the context. The Lord Jesus is looking for some rest and recreation with his friends. He's looking uh, to teach them and encourage his friends. And he's going to avoid conflict with the authorities. And so he comes to this desert place with his disciples. And notice it says at the end of verse 4, that the Jewish Passover festival was near. So it would have been the spring of the year, so there was plenty of grass for people to sit and rest. That's the context. Now to the conversations, and there are two of them. The first one, it's a bit clumsy. The first one's a bit awkward. Look at this, verses 5 to 7. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread? For these people to eat he asked this only to test him for he already had in mind what he was going to do and philip answered well, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have even a bite notice the lord jesus sees all these people approaching by foot and he's concerned for their needs i'm so impressed by that always concerned about other people. Luke writes, Christ welcomed them. Matthew and Mark says he healed their sick. John here emphasizes his concern about their needs by saying, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? He's always thinking of others. Now think about this for a minute. One of the reasons the Lord Jesus was going to this area was to get some time out, to get some r and Matthew tells us in his parallel gospel that this event took place shortly after Jesus heard about the beheading of his cousin, John the Baptist. It's no wonder he wanted to come apart for a little while. Get away from the crowds. Just get some time away from people. At least just for a little while. That's happened to me too. I bet it's happened to you. I'm involved in kind of a ministry role and I'm often with people and sometimes I just like to get some time out. We're from Adelaide, like uh, Leon's family. We're seven, Nicole, and now living. We uh, travel from Melbourne to Adelaide as frequently as we can and go a little bit further uh, west now to Wyala to see Sarah, James, and Freddie. But when we're in Adelaide, we just like to get a little bit of time out. And we discovered through Leon's relatives the beauty of Henley Beach. Henley Beach is a little further away from the city um, of Adelaide and, and it's a quiet place where we don't know many people. We're from Adelaide and we know a lot of people there. We belong to a big church in Adelaide. We like to go to Henley Beach because there we can be away from people. And on our last visit, we were walking on the jetty towards the tip of the jetty at Henley Beach and we saw this person walking towards us and we recognized her and she was with her husband and her kids. And I turned to Joy and I said, oh, good grief. We're going to have to stop and talk. Can we just get some time out just for a little while? It's a terrible attitude. She was there before us. They were coming back from the tip of the jetty to the land. We were going that way. It wasn't her fault that she got there before us. We stopped and we talked and we had a lovely time. But I said to Joy, oh, my goodness. Just wish we could get some time out. 
the Lord was very kind to us because she and her husband were leaving the area right that moment, which was great. But here's the point. It's a terrible attitude. I find myself like that on airplanes too. I travel a lot. I like the window seat where I can lean up against the, the wall and, uh, and just turn away from people and have some time out. The Lord Jesus is the exact opposite to that. His cousin has just been beheaded. He's exhausted in ministry. He's looking for some time out. And the crowds come to him by foot. And instead of saying, good grief, can't I get a break? And instead of turning his head away and leaning against the wall for his own sake, he turns to Philip. He says, Philip, where can we buy bread? So these people can eat. Now, why would he ask Philip? Well, because Philip's from the area. He's from Bethsaida. You can read about it in chapter 1, verse 14. He's from the area. So Philip knows the area. So he's basically saying, Philip, you're a local. Is there an IGA somewhere around here? Is there a Coles or a Woolies? Where, is there somewhere we can get some food so these people can have something to eat? And Philip says, oh my goodness. He says, half a year's wages wouldn't be enough for everyone to have even a bite. It's an amazing statement. You think about this. How much is a year's salary? Better not ask anyone to confess what their salary is. Let's pretend it's um, $70,000. $70,000. Philip is saying, well, $40,000 would not be enough. $50,000 might not be enough. Just for everyone to have a taste. This, this, this is an impossible situation, Lord. It wouldn't matter whether there was an IGA around the corner or not, we don't have the money to satisfy the need. I guarantee that every church has what someone has called Philip on their team. You know what someone's called Philip? A statistical pessimist. I bet every church has a statistical pessimist on the leadership team. Someone on the team will say, whoa, we can't do that. Do you have any idea how much this is going to cost us? We, we can't afford this initiative. Is this wise? Should we spend that money on that thing? If you have a statistical pessimist on your leadership team, thank God for them. We need people who think finance. But this text is not recorded here to highlight Philip's pessimism. It's recorded here to highlight the magnitude of the miracle that is to follow. More than half an annual salary wouldn't be enough for everyone even to have a bite. And that's the awkward nature of this conversation. But there's a second conversation, and it's very meaningful. It's a conversation with Andrew, and I love Andrew. It goes like this, verse 8. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, well, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? I like Andrew for a number of reasons. First of all, he's the patron saint of second best. Notice how he's described Verse 8, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. That's how he's described. 
In John chapter 1, John says, Behold the Lamb of God, and then follow him, and all that wonderful text. Then in verse 40 it says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and followed Jesus. And Simon Peter isn't even on the scene yet that Andrew gets mentioned as Simon Peter's brother. He's the patron saint of second best. In fact, he wasn't even second best. wasn't even third. In Mark chapter 3, the disciples are listed by name. Do you know the order? Simon Peter, James, John, Andrew. Fourth, doesn't even get listed with his brother. Very frankly, brothers and sisters, most of us in this room are not first best. We get upset. We get jealous. Why can't I have the prominence? Why do I have to be the one mopping the floors? Why can't I be the one who's seen? Why, I, why, why can't you just mention my name first? At least just once in a while. At its height... NASA estimates that in the 1960s, some 400,000 men and women across America were involved in the Apollo program to get Neil Armstrong to the moon. 400,000 people. They included everyone from astronauts to mission controllers to contractors to caterers to engineers to scientists, nurses, doctors, mathematicians, programmers and cleaners. 400,000 people to land one man on the moon. And none of you know any of their names. And Andrew was the patron saint of second best. And he took it graciously. I like Andrew for a second reason. He's always leading people to Jesus. In chapter 1, he leads Peter to the Lord Jesus. You know there's rarely anyone harder to introduce to Jesus than a member of your own family. For goodness sake, they know what you're like. You can't tell them anything they don't already know. And he leads his brother to Jesus. In chapter 12, some Greeks want to see Jesus and Andrew takes them to meet him. And here in our text, he introduces a little boy to Jesus. Some churches have evangelistic programs, outreach programs. They call them things like Operation Andrew. It's a good name because Andrew's all about finding people who don't know Jesus and introducing them to him. I like Andrew for a third reason. He's a winner. Anyone who can take a little boy's lunch away from the little boy has got to be a winner. I've got my grandson, Freddie, and he's got a strong grip. Leon, Holly, have you noticed? You try and get that carrot out of his hand or that piece of cucumber, you can't get out of his hand. And here's Andrew. He can take a little boy's lunch and prize it from his hands and use it for God's glory. I like him for a fourth reason. He's a man of great faith. Great faith. A little boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. And then with a touch of realism, he says, but how far will this go? among so many. 
but he has the faith to bring it to Jesus anyway. So that's the, the context and the conversations which brings us to the miracle itself, the catering. Let's have a look at verses 10 to 13. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. And when they'd all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and they filled the 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Notice the first thing the Lord Jesus did, he had the people sit down. Well, why did he do that? Imagine the chaos. Imagine the chaos if he just started like dishing out the food and when everyone was just standing around and milling around. The other gospel writers tell us that he actually had the people sit down in groups of 50 or hundreds. So this is no journalist guest. Guess. We know exactly how many men were there, about 5,000. They didn't count the women and children in those days, so some commentators tell us there's something like 12,000 people in the crowd. Hard for us to know, but we know there are about 5,000 men. The Lord Jesus does everything in order. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 40 has the people sit down in groups. And then you notice that the miracle took place in the hands of the Lord Jesus. He gave thanks for the food. By the way, have you ever noticed Jesus never asked anyone else to bless the food? He always did it himself. Isn't that interesting? So he himself gives thanks for the food. And then it says that he distributed, to, distributed the food to the people. First the bread, then the same with the fish. But Jesus didn't distribute the food to the people. The disciples did. But there's a principle in Scripture, it goes like this, what one does through another, he himself or she herself does. So when it says Jesus distributed the food, we know he did it through the disciples, but the principle is that is him, the Lord Jesus himself distributing the food. So the miracle somehow takes place in the hands of God incarnate, Jesus himself gave thanks for the food, he gives it to the disciples and they give it to the people. And everyone had enough to eat. That's a fascinating little phrase. Another translation reads, and they were satisfied. The, the, the word in the original language is the word pleiro'o. It's a Greek word. It means they were stuffed. It's the word that is used for the fattening of the livestock. A farmer doesn't fatten his livestock just a little bit. He wants these things big and round and satisfied in order to get the best return on his investment. These people were sated. They had more than enough to eat. We know there was more because there was more left over than what they started with. These people were stuffed to the full. They couldn't fit any more in. No one was hungry. But abundance doesn't give license to waste. And so Jesus says, collect the leftovers. Let nothing be wasted. A timeless principle there. Abundance is not license for waste. 
and there were 12 baskets full of leftovers. That's the miracle of the catering. The miraculous multiplication of five small barley loaves and two small fish. And now we come to what is perhaps the most important part of the whole story. You say, but wasn't that the most important part of the story? No. Everything we talked about so far is just the build-up. The most important part of the story is found in the conclusion. So let's have a look at verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. The prophet. What prophet? Well, it's the prophet announced in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. It reads like this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, from among the Israelites. You must listen to him. Now everyone will say, well, this is speaking about Joshua because Joshua came after Moses and I agree up to a point. But the end, at the very end of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, verse 10, you read this. Since that time, since the death of Moses, since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses. No one, not even Joshua, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt. No prophet has risen like Moses, not even Joshua. Verse, 18, uh, verse 14, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet the prophet of Deuteronomy 18.15, who is to come into the world. And the rabbis caught it. They knew there was going to be a prophet greater than Moses, greater than Joshua. A new Moses, one greater than Moses, and one of the great doctrines of the New Testament is the doctrine of the new Moses. You find it in John chapter 1. John the Baptist is preaching out in the wilderness. The religious authorities send a delegation to find out who he is. Are you the Messiah? No, I'm, I'm not the Messiah. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet? No, I'm not the prophet. What prophet? The prophet of Deuteronomy 18.15. You find it in Acts chapter 3. Peter quotes this passage to indicate that Jesus is the new Moses. He says, For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up a prophet for you like me. From among your own people you must listen to everything he tells you. You find it in Acts chapter 8 where Stephen gives his famous sermon. It's all over the place. The point is, Jesus is the new Moses. And just as Moses fed the children of Israel for 40 years out in the wilderness with manna from heaven, Here's Jesus feeding the crowds with bread. Supernaturally feeding 5,000 men plus women and children. This is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. And that's the main point of the whole story. That's the real story here. Now, when you come to a text like this or any passage of scripture, you've got to ask, so what? Like, what difference does it make? Great story. History. It's true. But so what? 
What difference does it make? Well, there are many lessons we can extract from this well-known account. I want to take just three. They're very important, and they all relate to the other. So let's have a look at three lessons as we finish. Here's the first lesson. God delights to use the insignificant. God delights to use the insignificant. A boy, a little boy, probably not 13. You imagine if you had some great calamity you were working through, some great problem you needed to solve, and there was a little boy in the room. Would you, would you turn to him for the answer? Oh, we, we, all us grown-ups with all our wisdom and experience, we're getting our heads around this. Who should, oh, let's find a little child to help us out. No one would turn to him. This is a little boy with five loaves. No, not five loaves. Five small barley loaves. Barley was poor man's food. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 6. You could buy double the barley for the same price of wheat. Barley is poor man's food. Small barley loaves. This is a little boy's lunch. It's kind of like a snack. Five small barley loaves and two small fish. These aren't 10 kilogram trout five kilogram pike or 20 kilogram salmon. <laughs> this is more like sardine sized fish, little pickled herrings. In fact, it was unheard of to have fish far away from the shore back in those days. If you went by the Sea of Galilee or by the ocean, we well, didn't carry fish around, they would just go off. But little pickled fish that is made into some kind of paste, just a little bit of protein to go with the carbohydrate. This is five cheap pieces of bread and two small sardine-like fish. A little bit of pickled fish to help the dry bread go down. The Lord Jesus uses a little boy, a little boy, and five small barley loaves and two small fish. Why? Because God delights to use the insignificant. It's a pattern in Scripture. God takes Moses, a shepherd, a shepherd. All he has is a stick in his hand, a staff. And God takes Moses to bring to his knees the mighty Pharaoh who'd been terrorizing the whole of the East Mediterranean area. Redeems two million people from his hand. God uses Gideon, Gideon and his little band of 300 men to put to flight 145,000 of the enemy, the Midianites. God uses a shepherd boy named David. He's got nothing but five smooth stones and a sling to put to death the mighty Goliath who'd been blaspheming the God of the Israelites. Mary, an unknown Nobody, maybe 16 years old, maybe 17, Mary, to birth God in the flesh, Mary, 
give birth to the Son of God. Jesus rides into Jerusalem before he's crucified on a donkey. Why not some magnificent stallion, for goodness sake? He is God. He rides on a donkey, the back of a donkey. It's so meaningful to me. If God can bring glory to himself on the back of a donkey, he can bring glory to himself from a guy who's born in the rough neighborhood in England and raised in the northern, particularly rough northern suburbs of Adelaide back in my day and bring glory to himself. He can use any of us. You know why? Because God delights to use the insignificant. And every person in this room, when we see ourselves as we really are, it's insignificant. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem and the authorities say, tell the crowd to stop worshipping you, Jesus says, if they stop, the very rocks themselves will cry out and worship me. Every one of us is insignificant and God delights to use the insignificant and accomplishes his purposes through you. Here's the second lesson. God delights to use the insignificant when they have one hand in the hand of the Lord Jesus and the other in the hands of people. God delights to use the insignificant when they have one hand in his hand and one hand in the hand of people. How did Jesus feed the people? Well, through his disciples. Because the disciples were constantly walking with real people. And one of the perennial dangers for people who come to put their faith in Jesus is to shun those who don't know Jesus and lose contact with them. And we've been reminded this morning so poignantly that we need to be people who stay connected with the real people out there. We need to know where they're at, what their concerns are, what their burdens are, what their hopes are and their thoughts and their dreams and their philosophies and their income levels and their debt levels. Spend time interacting with real people because God delights to use you when you have one hand in his and one hand in the hand of real people. We need to spend time with people who curse and swear. We need to spend time with people who work in the factory and the hospital and the police force, and the military, and the construction industry, with people who don't know Jesus. Spend time with people who worship false gods. Years ago, when Joy and I were living in the Gambia in West Africa, doing some mission work, we were both nurses in those days, and we were working in a little clinic. We didn't have a doctor, but we would see many, many, many patients a day. Some were very, very sick with cerebral malaria, and many died. Many did not die. And uh, the Lord gave us, and me in particular, a particular ministry with the older people, and particularly the older women, and children. But I could never connect with the young men, with men my age. Until one day I came down with malaria, and I was very, very sick. I probably lost about 10 kilos in the matter of a couple of weeks, and I was sick. I'll tell you about malaria more discreetly sometime if we're talking one-on-one. It's not pleasant. Very, very sick. 
I was on the road to recovery, praise the Lord, uh, but still very, very weak. But at that point, there was a working bee in the village in which we lived. All the men would gather to perform some menial tasks in order to prepare the village for the wet season that was to come. And I felt compelled to join in. And I got out of my bed and people thought I was Lazarus. My goodness, I looked like death. I was skin and bone. I was pale. I was ghostly. I wasn't able to drink the water like uh, local friends could. And, and I wasn't able to do as much hard work as they could, but I was able to participate. And so I tried my very best. I gave myself to the task at hand. And do you know what? A turning point took place right there and then. And from that moment on, somehow, those men were willing to interact with me. And for the rest of our time there, I had built great relationships with them and told them about Jesus. Such an insignificant little thing, just pulling out a few weeds and preparing a village for the winter, for the wet season. But God delights to use the insignificant when we have one hand in his and one hand in the hand of the people. Here's the final lesson. God delights to use the insignificant because the Lord, because the Lord Jesus is totally sufficient. God delights to use the insignificant because the Lord Jesus is totally sufficient. Why do we have the account of the 12 baskets of leftovers? Why not just tell the story of the miracle? That was enough. There were thousands of people fed with a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. Why do we have to have the account of the leftovers? Why the 12 baskets? The miracle itself is amazing. Do we need any more than that? The miracle was enough. Why the baskets? It's to show us that the sufficiency of Christ is more than sufficient. It's not barely sufficient. He didn't just, just feed the people. He fed them with abundance. They were stuffed and there were leftovers. In fact, this story is replicated elsewhere. You have the feeding of the 5,000 in all four Gospels. You have the feeding of the 4,000 in two of the Gospels. In the feeding of the 5,000, it takes place in Jewish territory. The crowd were Jews. In the feeding of the 4,000, it takes place in Gentile territory. The people were foreigners. When Jesus fed the 5,000, there were 12 baskets of leftovers. And the word used for the baskets is the word coffinous. Coffinous baskets is a Greek word. In the feeding of the 4,000 Gentiles, there were seven baskets left over. The baskets were spiritus baskets. Jesus maintains that distinction whenever he refers to this event. Later, they're crossing the Sea of Galilee, and he talks to the disciples about the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the leaven and says, Be careful, beware of them. And they say, oh my goodness, he's talking about food again. We didn't bring the bread. Jesus says, no, don't you remember what I'm talking about? When we fed the 5,000 Jews, how many baskets were there left over? No, there were 12. He uses the term coffinous baskets. He says, when we fed the 4,000 Gentiles, how many baskets were left over? Well, there were seven. He uses the term again, the spiritus baskets. What's he doing? Why the distinction? 
He's simply showing us that Christ is sufficient not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. He's sufficient for everyone. Next Tuesday, what is it today? Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Tuesday's a famous day coming up. Do you know why? It's the day they predict that the population on planet Earth will tick over to 8 billion people. It's this month, and they predict it's Tuesday. 8 billion people alive on planet Earth, and Jesus is sufficient for every single one of them. He's sufficient for you. He's sufficient for me. He's sufficient for Kingsway. He's sufficient for Australia and Ukraine and Russia and Afghanistan and Yemen and Djibouti and Fiji and Poland and China and the United States and the United Kingdom and the United Arab Emirates. He's sufficient for every Jew. He's sufficient for every Gentile. He's sufficient for every follower of Jesus. He's sufficient for every person who doesn't know Jesus. Christ is more than enough. He is totally sufficient. And the only obligation on your part is to hear of his love for you and respond and say, Jesus, you're enough. I give my life to you. He's enough. God delights to use the insignificant. God delights to use the insignificant when they have one hand in his and one hand in the hands of people. God delights to use the insignificant because Christ is totally sufficient. He's more than enough. Our Father, we thank you for this famous story and we thank you Jesus is enough. What can wash away my sin, we sing. What can wash away my sin? Nothing, nothing can apart from the blood of Jesus. He's enough and we worship you in his name. Amen.